Hi, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher. Just two techies with a giant ocean between us, talking cloud, Legos, and technology. This is episode three, recorded on 20 February 2015. Music used under Creative Commons license from Subway, Sonic Beats, and Cloudy. Ugh, it's been a brutal week. Uh, what are we going to talk about this week? You know, I don't really know. There's been horrendous weather. I know you've been melting and I've been freezing, so it's kind of one of those things where we're living on two different sides of the world almost, it would seem. Yeah, it's 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 been fun. Uh, I've been grilling every day still. Uh, I like to do that because we can kind of set the weather patterns around it. If I turn the grill on, we know it's going to rain. We get that nice quick afternoon downpour, ups the humidity a little bit, which makes it feel even hotter than it already is. Uh, and then we get to move on and, and go on with our day. Uh, my parents were sending me pictures of their house in Gloucester, Massachusetts, north of Boston. Uh, and they have these huge snow drifts just up above the windows. It looks like the snow on the ground is almost as high as the roof in this little one-story house. So it definitely looks like uh, you guys are getting slammed out there on the East Coast. Yeah, I mean, it's supposed to get ridiculously cold tomorrow. Uh, somewhere around 5 a.m., somewhere thereabouts, we're supposed to go into the Sub-Zero, which will be awesome. And by awesome, I mean it'll be cold. The uh, the cool thing for me, no pun intended, of course, uh, is more yesterday evening, all of a sudden I heard a long rush of water, and I was kind of going, what is that? So I kind of looked around, I checked, you know, make certain the pipe hadn't broken, uh, checked outside, still heard said running water, and thought to myself, who in the right mind would be using a hose in the garage? Well, actually, as it would turn out, a pipe did burst in the garage. So, uh, fortunately, it didn't really seem that there was too much damage, but uh, we had our own little uh, ice rink downstairs, which was kind of neat, I guess. Uh, but, you know, I'm guessing from what you're dealing with out there, it's probably just as miserable in the sense that uh, humidity is never something fun when all of a sudden you realize your shirt is soaked and uh, you haven't really been doing anything. Yeah, uh, we just booked a a bit of a mini holiday to uh, take our children up to Cairns to the Great Barrier Reef uh, to do some snorkeling. Um, And I I was booking flights and hotels and and cars and, and all the things that come along with that. Uh, and going through the websites, all you can see is, uh, you know, hotel rates are a little bit cheaper because it's the low season. Um, so it's, it's a little bit backwards to me that, you know, summertime is the low season because you think summer, tropics, uh, wouldn't more people vac- vacation there and do those kind of things. Um, and I was, we were talking with some friends at dinner last night and they said, you know, you do realize it's low season because it's also cyclone season. Uh, and, you know, typhoons are coming through and, and hurricanes and all these kind of things. I said, oh, really? Is that the reason? I said, yeah, a, a big one's about to hit, actually. I'm like, no, nah, you know, really don't pay too much attention to local news because uh, we're far enough south that uh, we don't get those things in Sydney. And sure enough, woke up this morning um, and I had my nice alert from uh, the U.S. Department of State. Um, you know, travelers in Australia, please avoid, you know, these parts of Queensland because... Uh, there is a major cyclone, a, you know, a Category 5 about to make landfall and do those things. So um, 
we're going to do that in a couple weeks, head, head up that way. So if we don't make it back, you'll know why. It's because we're, um, you know, doing the Tom Hanks thing. We got stranded on an island and, and couldn't get back. So do you have your <clears throat> volleyball ready that you can call Wilson or? Uh, you know, I think we're going to settle for just taking the snorkeling gear with us uh, and hope that can carry us through. Fair enough. I mean, right now it does look like a nice day up in good old Georgetown, and I'm not referring to Georgetown in D.C., but Georgetown there in Australia, 82 degrees, and uh, looks beautiful, but uh, not the 70-some-odd degrees there in Sydney with 100% humidity that I'm sure you're dealing with. Yeah, I was going to try and keep the doors open today, uh, but I can't do it. There's too many... uh, too many birds and, and things out there today. It sounds a little bit tropical, so trying to keep some of that background noise down. So uh, if you hear a quick thud in about 30 minutes, it's just because it got too hot in in the office and I, I passed out. Nice. So in other news, um, looks like if you're a OneDrive subscriber, you are able to get 100 free gig on OneDrive, the consumer edition. Uh, to use to your heart's desire. I don't know if you saw that or saw that pop up in your uh, benefits page for OneDrive if you ever go to it. Yeah, they ha- they have all sorts of things. So they, they had a promotion, uh, I believe that popped up today or, or uh, overnight for me, uh, where if you um, have Dropbox installed and then you install OneDrive, hey, we'll give you uh, 100 gigs of space in your OneDrive, which is nice. Uh, and then a couple of days ago, they also had a promotion where uh, if you attach your Bing Rewards account or you sign up for Bing Rewards, uh, one of those kind of things, I think they gave you uh, another 100, 100 gigs or 200 gigs, something like that. Um, and I believe both of those stack on top of each other. So potentially this week, you could be getting uh, 200 to 300 gigs of free space in OneDrive, um, you know, of course, the caveat being, you know, you get this space for a year or two, uh, and then, you know, when it, if you're actually using it, when it goes away, uh, you know, nothing's free forever. Yeah, I just uh, happened to open up Feedly a little while ago and noticed uh, something in one of the feeds, I guess for <coughs> Slick Deals, mentioning the one-year, 100-gigabyte, one-drive cloud storage for Dropbox users. So, kind of neat. Um, I also took advantage of the... 100 gigs for two years for that Bing Rewards about a week ago. Uh, I, personally, I don't know what I'm going to do with like extra storage. Might uh, add a duplicate copy of all my MP3s as well as all my photos and put them up there, but I don't really have too much of a use for it since... Uh, I don't know if you're still an Amazon Prime member, but Prime pretty much opened up uh, their photo storage, I believe, if you're a Prime member, you know have as many photos as you want up in the web. So kind of kind of one of those things where we're seeing more and more undercutting more and more of the different cloud providers trying to get folks just to use their service. Yeah, definitely. There's there's this huge drive for everybody to uh, kind of do the land grab and, and pick space up. And I think, um, you know, we've hit this interesting point where uh, storage is really just a, uh, so cheap for some of these providers, you know, with, with the scale that, uh, Microsoft is purchasing at and, and, you know, companies like Microsoft and Amazon and Google and, and Facebook and everything, um, you know, they can go out and, and build these, these custom kits. And, uh, you know, it's not like they're going to Best Buy and buying a couple hard drives. Uh, 
you know, they order these things by, uh, by the ton, bring them in. So they're paying pennies for, uh, you know, what the rest of us are spending dollars on. Um, so th there's some really compelling uh, cases out there to, to grow into some of this stuff and, and see where it all ends up. Yeah, it's definitely one of those interesting things. I know, you know, if we were to go set up uh, on-premise SharePoint system and someone said, hey, I want an extra terabyte of storage, that's when we start looking at the, you know, 15,000 RPM drives and we start thinking about RAID levels. And it's not quite as easy as kind of the consumer storage that we're seeing everybody hop on board with. But I would hope that Microsoft, AWS, Dropbox, Box, all the different companies out there aren't just using like a single, you know, platter of some sort that's hosting all of our storage for us, but they're actually uh, putting it out there in such a way that if a drive dies, which, you know, it does happen, especially in a data center in Sydney where it's 268 degrees, um, you know, they're able to recover the data in some way or fashion, some sort. <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, you know, the whole thing's infinitely interesting to me. We always uh, talk to clients about um, even some of their, their enterprise-y solutions. Uh, you know, we look at advancements in the consumer space, and, and we always talk about um, how cheap these things are to acquire. So if we just need some more storage or, uh, you know, if I need to store some more photos from my iPhone in the cloud, I can go and purchase, you know, 100 gigs of space from uh, Apple uh, at a pretty cheap rate per month, you know, we're talking a, a dollar to a month kind of thing. Um, and then when we translate these solutions over, uh, you know, for, for clients and we're building things in a system like Azure, uh, trying to explain that, uh, you know, really when we do these cost analysis and breakdowns, you're, you're paying for compute, but the storage is really cheap. We're talking pennies per gigabyte. Um, and with some of these systems, you can actually get some really great economies in there. Uh, for things like Azure, uh, you only pay for what you use, not for what you provision. Uh, so you can provision disks or, uh, you know, if we're in the IaaS world uh, in, in our storage account, uh, we can create VHDs uh, that are up to a terabyte in size. Uh, so there, there's really no reason not to always create disks that are a terabyte, even if you only plan to use 100 gigs of that, even though you've provisioned a terabyte, uh, you're only paying for what you use. So if you provision a terabyte disk and you put a 50 meg file on there, you're really only paying for 50 megs. Uh, but the rest of that kind of burst capacity and growth uh, is built into that because it's, it's really hard to grow a disk later, uh, but it's really easy to say up front, let's give you all the space you think you're ever going to need and then some because uh, you're really not paying for it until you start to use it. Yeah, and I guess that's something probably to make mention of, though, is you know, for the guys that run those data centers, if you go up and you say, hey, we want to we wanna put $10,000 onto an account, um, all of a sudden those guys in the data center go, huh, okay, we got 10K that the client is going to, you know, a customer is going to potentially use inside of our data center. Well, what do we need to ramp up? What do we need to make available? What staff do we need on site? So it's kind of one of those things where if you're doing one of those prepaid accounts with something like Azure, um, you know, be mindful that how much you put down could potentially uh, change what the staffing is for data centers or what the responsibilities are. And especially if you are going to do one of those prepaids, realize 
uh, at the end of that time period, you probably, you know, if you haven't burnt through the cycles of your uh, your Azure subscription, um, you're not going to be able to recoup that money. I know, I want to say, what it was it, a couple years ago, I remember uh, there was a great snowstorm back here in Virginia, D.C. area, Scott, and you were working with a client, and uh, they had, you know, some amount of uh, Azure credits or something, and you just, <laughs> they were looking at it, and they were going, well, we've got money, we've got money to burn, let's let's do this uh, wholeheartedly, you know, whole hog. So kind of one of those things where if, if you make the commitment and you know what it's going to be, uh, what, might as well just go whole hog if you've already got the money there. It's like that gift card in the sky that just keeps giving, right? Yeah, a- absolutely. So, you know, going to the cloud isn't really that hard. Uh, you know, we, we have these conversations all the time, um, you know, where people think it's really difficult to go there. Um, it's not. It's pretty much put a credit card in and push a button and uh, you, you just start playing around and provisioning things. Uh, the scary parts are really, you know, do you trust your provider um, and do you know what you're going to spend on it? So when we talk about uh, enterprise commitments and, and recouping things, you really do have to have a solid understanding of um, the workloads you're going to deploy and what the spend behind those is going to be. Uh, you certainly don't want to leave money on the table. Um, you, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, you mentioned the way these uh, service providers are provisioning on the back end. So when do they need to buy more hardware? When do they need to bring more staff on? Uh, same kind of thing. If you're going to walk in and purchase a solution uh, and put the money up front to do that because you want to get the discounts and everything else that come with it, uh, you're going to want to make sure you use that to the fullest, right? It's, it's kind of like turning a server on and letting it sit there and do nothing. You know, it sits idle at 10% CPU all the time. Really, we'd like to see that thing churning at like 75, 80% CPU and making sure that it's actually doing some work because if it's not working, we don't want it turned on. Uh, and we need to kind of treat our money the same way for those things. So uh, if we've spent it or if we've said we're going to spend it, then we really need to be on top of that and make sure that that's going to happen. Yeah, never, never want to leave money on the table. Never want to <clears throat> leave something out there that you could potentially, you know, make use of. So, in the same vein, I know that uh, said AC and CJ have uh, their subscription-based service for uh, turning machines on and off. You know, if you're if you're looking for something that'll do that for you, there's services out there just as well. And if you're going to pay money for them, you might want to make certain that you actually go in and configure them and make use of them. So. Moral of the story, um, you know, just if you if you paid for a service and you're not making use of it, uh, you might want to revisit why you're paying for said service, uh, whether it be the cloud, whether it be something to help you with the cloud, or whether it be you know a gym membership and hey we've hit February and you stopped going after the first two weeks. But um, wanted to hop into some of the follow up. I know uh, we're 15 minutes in. And we've got a couple things that uh, kind of get left on the table, so to speak, from last week. Uh, the first up, we talked a lot about, you know, kind of the churn and whatnot of Azure, AWS, and all of the different changes that seem to be going on on a regular basis. Uh, do you do you notice uh, the folks that you're working with starting to hit kind of this, this feeling of change fatigue? I know with the folks that I work with, it's kind of one of those things where, uh, you know, the engineers on the back end having to go through, do patches and so on and so forth, they're getting uh, kind of run down. But then the end users, the consumers, the customers that are using these systems, just 
the same way, uh, you know, uh, they seem to be looking at a lot of this stuff and going, oh, well, that's a neat feature. I don't know how I'm going to use that. Or, you know, the flip side, why is that there? And so uh, I just, I've noticed a lot of time we're starting to see a little bit of change fatigue on the, the end users for a lot of these systems and a lot of change fatigue on kind of the developers and the IT pros. And I was just kind of curious, you know, what you had uh, kind of noticed there. Yeah, I think it's a matter of everybody trying to acclimate to this brave new world. Um, so for a long time, uh, I've been working with organizations and, and we typically step in uh, to execute on a project and we'll work with uh, uh, their PMO, you know, their project management office or, and, and their project managers. Um, and very often you'll step in and say, uh, okay, this is great. Uh, we have PMs. Um, who communicates with your organization or do you have any type of uh, change management communication strategy? So if we're going in and deploy, deploying a new uh, SharePoint farm, uh, how are we going to push that out? How are we going to train users? How are we going to talk to them? Um, and very often we're working with these you know, internal departments, so it's, it's going to be an IT department. Um, and to a certain degree, usually those, those project managers, you know, they, they tend to work exclusively on IT projects. And they get this, uh, you know, deer and headlights look on their faces around, um, wait, we have to talk to the users and we have to explain what's going on. Um, and and it's, it's very scary for them, right? Um, companies like Microsoft and uh, Amazon and, and, and others, they're just constantly pushing things out. You know, you go to Facebook one day and it's like, oh, I've got a new button. Or uh, you pop over to the Twitter website and, oh, look, there's new cards. Uh, and then we translate that into the enterprise world where we've got, you know, these, some of these pure SaaS apps, like we look at something like Yammer, uh, where they're doing all this A-B testing. So y you can have one UI experience and the person who's sitting in the cube next to you, uh, you know, they go, hey, what's this new button on my screen? Uh, I don't know. I don't have it on mine. Uh, but that's the way these companies are kind of doing things. Uh, they're, they're getting quite a bit better about it, right? So companies like Microsoft and Office 365, they're getting better about communicating that change and, uh, you know, putting some commitments in place to say, hey, we know this is a deficiency um, and we're going to work really hard to let our customers know what's going on. I, I think within those organizations, you know, the, 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 that change management piece becomes critical. So how do we manage that change and how do we communicate that out? So you have to be willing to uh, talk to your users uh, and that goes both ways. So um, you know, those people who are making those communications, uh, sometimes they might even be the ones informing the IT department that things are coming down the pipe because very often, um, you know, those folks are down in the, down in the trenches and, and they might have their heads down and not know that these things are coming as well. Uh, Microsoft offers some great um, uh, kind of pre-baked templates uh, for going ahead and uh, getting people up to speed on these systems and also kind of coming up with plans to move forward. So how can we better communicate with an organization? So, uh, you know, Microsoft is going to put something in the service dashboard. So within your organization, let's have a plan that when we see these things come up, we're going to take, you know, two weeks internally to consume them. Uh, maybe we need to structure some lunch and learns, but we definitely want to have um, ongoing communications with, with everybody to make sure that works. Uh, like you said, it does make everybody uh, pretty tired. Um, it, it, it's tough. Uh, you know, our, our, our jobs are changing and everything's kind of changing around us. Uh, so keeping up with those pieces 
uh, it becomes really important. You've just got to learn to make that a part of your day uh, and, and, and be willing to kind of put yourself out there and, and I think uh, understand the systems that we're consuming a little bit more uh, than we've had to in the past. Yeah, I guess. I think, you know, the one thing that has been neat, I suppose, has been to <clears throat> kind of see the, uh, I guess it's the Office 365 product group um, actually engage a little bit more. Uh, I know they do a ton of stuff to try and engage through various means of social media and through uh, different interactions at conferences and whatnot, but more recently, it was interesting to see, I think uh, Bill Bear made a guest appearance with uh, Todd Clint to kind of talk through um, some of the recent announcements they've had around SharePoint. And then uh, Sonia, I'm going to butcher her last name, um, Sonia from the group, who is kind of one of the key folks involved with a lot of the different uh, forms components or forms futures, I guess it is. Uh, it was interesting to see her host that Yam Jam. Uh, I think it was yesterday, wasn't it? She she uh, went out on uh, Dan Holmes' IT Unity, uh, and they did they they did a, they did a yeah, webinar um, back and forth. So Sonia is kind of uh, she, she's one of the product managers for the Office Group. Um, so she's helping kind of try and um, again communicate that stuff uh, a, a lot better than they've been doing in the past. Yeah, I almost feel like I'm watching, you know, someone going on, uh, Jimmy Fallon or David Letterman or the soon-to-be Colbert show um, to kind of discuss, you know, topics of the day with uh, folks that probably are a little bit more engaged at the lower levels and not necessarily the folks that are going to WPC or uh, some of the different things that Microsoft has for, you know, executive leaders and whatnot. Um, so it's... It's been cool to see him trying to engage across the entire stack. So I don't know if you caught this, but Lenovo apparently had something called Superfish that was going through and acting as kind of a man in the middle where uh, there was software loaded onto your laptop when you went out and bought it. And because it's a consumer laptop, you're not going to go through and wipe it and put your own image on. You're going to use you know all the different pieces that they put in place for you because you know it's a consumer laptop. It's not... <clears throat> for us IT pros to go play with that stuff, I guess. Um, but it was just kind of interesting to see that they had this little piece of software in there, I guess that was trying to help you locate, uh, you know, things that would be more interesting to you. But in the process, it would actually crack your HTTPS session, intercept it, look at your traffic, so on and so forth. Um, looks like Lenovo is trying to, you know, put the kibosh on this and wipe it from machines remotely. But that's still one of those things where you just really have to, you know, kind of wonder about these uh, preloaded laptops from Dell, from Lenovo, from HP, uh, some of the, I guess what we sometimes refer to as bloatware, uh, causing a security issue. You know, the Superfish thing is pretty scary. So uh, I, I heard about this on Twitter first from uh, InfoSec Taylor Swift. Highly recommend uh, everybody follow that account, uh, mostly because uh, it's just Taylor Swift talking about technology. What what couldn't be hilarious about that? Uh, but the whole super... You just got to shake it off. Yeah, absolutely. So, off. you know, the Superfish thing was, uh, it, it, it's not really great. So Lenovo's come out and 
Um, you know, they've, they've been reaching out to tech blogs and, um, you, you know, one of their big things is they, they, they keep on coming back to, um, you know, they've thoroughly investigated uh, the technology and they don't find any evidence to substantiate any security concerns. It's like, that's great, but this service that they're using, um, it blanket installs uh, a, a cert in the uh, root certificate store. Um, and this thing can sit there. It spoofs everything. Um, and it, it, you know, it's one thing to, you know, it's, it's pretty egregious to have that there and, and, and some of the behaviors and things that it was doing. Um, but Superfish, um, you know, the, the, the company itself, the, you know, it looks like they actually published uh, the private keys for that certificate as well. Um, so having this thing sitting there looking at all the traffic and doing everything, uh, it, it, it's really kind of scary. And depending on how you use your computer, uh, you know, potentially, you know, you, these things have been impacting you. You know, if you're on these regular out-of-the-box consumer builds, uh, you, you know, some of this stuff's been reported, you know, as far back as a year ago uh, that it's out there. So uh, definitely some pretty scary stuff. You know, it makes the case for, um, you know, try not to run the crapware. And, uh, you know, at, at least for, I think for people like you and I, uh, you know, I tend to tinker and rebuild those systems anyway, uh, just to get rid of it. And, you know, it becomes an exercise in frustration to try and get um, some of those OEM apps back on there. Uh, but it can be worth it to have your own kind of custom build and not have to worry about some of these things because we continue to hear about them. Uh, they're, they're really not good. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, these companies really aren't going to stop doing these things, right? Uh, we, we live in this world where everybody makes their money off uh, advertising and kind of understanding our behaviors. Uh, so, you know, until that goes away, um, it, it's, it's a really tough, weird place to be in. So you, you've just got to kind of tread carefully um, and hopefully be mindful that these things are out here and, and understand the impacts around them. Yeah, beyond just that uh, Twitter account you mentioned, definitely a good source of information. Um, I think it's the Sands Institute has like a five or six minute podcast that gets put out uh, usually in the evening. So it's, you know, available and ready to be downloaded the next morning. But that uh, goes through Sans Diary, which is pretty decent information as well when you're, you know, poking around and going, huh, what patches are out there that I should probably apply or what, uh, what bug is hitting the internet that could potentially take my system down. So kind of in the same vein that uh, information security stuff is pretty serious. Uh, but back to the Superfish stuff, I know I could have sworn I saw something a couple weeks ago uh, about maybe it was iOS having like a VPN profile that kind of did the same thing where uh, the user would go in and once they turned on their VPN client because they thought they were going through a VPN, um, all their traffic on the other side was having something similar go on. But I'll have to, I'll have to dig back and see if I can find that article. So... Did you ever buy a Windows 10 device or Windows 8 device when you were back here? Uh, no, I didn't buy one. So uh, when I ran into you when I was back in the States, um, ended up with that little um, piece of uh, garbageware, that, that Dell Venue 8 Pro thing, um, which, you know, I really don't understand uh, Windows on a, on a touch screen, like a pure touch device with the desktop and everything. Uh, so when they announced Windows 10, I, I was really hoping that would make it better. Uh, so I, I went ahead and upgraded that. I've been playing around with it. It's still not a, uh, a great device. It's definitely not my um, favorite kind of preferred thing to use. Uh, 
Um, pretty much every time I pick that thing up, I want to throw it at the wall. And usually after about three minutes, I just go back and pick up my phone or my iPad um, and run with those. Yeah, I think uh, that device is definitely an interesting one. Um, I think the form factor or something with Windows 8.1, just they don't make sense on that one. But uh, for anybody that's out there and curious, um, Windows 10 is now available for download uh, in preview mode for phones. So it's, you know, it's available to you. It's, uh, I think you have to join the Windows Insider Group, which is just something out on Microsoft's website. If you do a Google Bing DuckDuckGo for Windows Insiders, you'll find that information and be able to pull down. Uh, I think it's just a code you have to enter on a Windows phone device. But you probably don't want to use it on a Windows phone device that is, you know, your main Windows phone. Um, not saying that it's not stable, but if it's anything like what Apple puts out for its beta builds of iOS, I would probably steer clear until it actually goes GM. Yeah, you're actually limited in some of the devices you can install that on as well. So it, it, it's a really limited preview. Uh, and it sounds like it's rough around the edges. I mean, Windows 10 um, on the desktop is not great. Like it's 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 got some, uh, some weird issues and, and some pretty... Uh, wonky kind of regressions. Um, so the Windows 10 on phone thing, again, it's limited by device. Uh, it sounds like it has some of those same problems. So, you know, it's one of those tread carefully things. If you want to play around with it, uh, great, but you, you might be better off waiting a few months uh, and seeing what kind of fixes and uh, new functionality makes its way into those builds. Yeah, it, you know, just speaking from personal experience, I wanted to cry when I was using some of the beta builds of iOS a couple of years ago. But uh, speaking of iOS, um, the new devices that, you know, the iPhone 6, iPhone 6 Plus, I believe the iPad Mini 3 and the iPad Air 2, getting kind of hard to uh, remember all these, but uh, apparently Tim Cook got invited to a cybersecurity summit of some sort at the White House last week and was basically telling folks, hey, we're working with uh, Direct Express and GSA Smart Card or Smart Pay cards to be able to use those through Apple Pay, which I thought was you know, somewhat interesting that uh, this technology of NFC is really starting to you know, make its way into the public uh, through Apple. I know Google and all the folks with Android devices They've been using NFC for a while. Uh, just interesting to see all of a sudden it gain all the steam with Apple. Yeah, you know, Apple's always been great at that consumer space and selling the story. So uh, for companies like Google and, and, you know, all those Android devices, it was great to have those for geeks, but they, they didn't have a compelling way to sell that uh, to real people. So uh, when we look at, you know, I tend to look at something like Apple and the innovation that they have. Um, isn't necessarily in the actual uh, features they come up with, but it's in the implementation and the messaging around it. Uh, so Apple Pay already consumes a, a huge part of uh, contactless payments after coming out. And it's really not just because it's NFC. Uh, you know, it, it's great that it's NFC. It's actually a little bit more secure. We get tokenization, uh, uh, you know, with that uh, fingerprint reader and everything else that's going on. Um, so that's really nice from the back end, from the security side. The credit card companies like that, you know, your bank likes that. 
um, all those kind of things. But it's also dead simple for consumers, right? So it, it, it's really great that like Samsung Galaxy devices have a fingerprint reader on them. Uh, but if you have ever tried to use them, they stink. Like that that implementation is horrible. Uh, so Apple, the company, is really good at coming along and saying, "Let's come up with a compelling consumer story." Uh, you know, it's not going to be for the geeks. It's going to be for everyday people. Uh, and let's go ahead and push that messaging out there and make it work. And that tends to tick a lot of, uh, you know, uh, the, the techies off because they'll sit there and say, you know, I've been able to do this on my phone for the past two years. It's like, yes, you have. Um, but the way that you were doing it really wasn't that easy and it wasn't going to take off with the rest of, uh, you know, the rest of the population that's out there. Um, so it's really nice to see some of these things come along and, you know, depending on the platform, we also get, uh, you know, to, to still have our fun and, and, and move things through. Um, one of the other things in the, uh, iOS kind of space, um, there's an app out there called, uh, workflow, which I don't know if anybody, um, has had a chance to play with it, but it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. It's, uh, basically, um, OSX automator. Uh, but in an iOS app. So you can build uh, custom workflows with any number of actions. And actions can be anything from um, pick a picture from my camera roll to uh, consume an RSS feed and parse it. Let's do some regular expression kind of parsing on it and pull some uh, like key value pairs back out of JSON and things like that. So you can get really geeky with this stuff and push it through. Uh, they, they had a big update uh, last week. Um, bunch of new actions, bunch of really cool things. And now this one app is really starting to uh, replace a lot of uh, smaller apps for me. So, you know, Dropbox came out with an update this week. They announced, hey, we've got save to Dropbox anywhere. Um, workflow has been out for a couple months. It's already had that workflow execution in it. So uh, I'm probably going to stick with things uh, like that action. Um, it's got a, some other really cool nifty pre-baked um, workflows in there. They've got things from um, go ahead and send uh, my ETA to a contact, let them know uh, when I'm going to show up, uh, all the way down to things like, um, you know, again, I use it uh, to monitor uh, the exchange rate. Uh, so I have a custom workflow I built. It consumes uh, an XML feed, um, pulls some values out of that and then pushes it over to an app I use to, to track all that stuff automatically. Uh, so, so some really cool stuff going on with that app. Highly encourage everybody to take a look at it. Yeah, I happened to find Workflow, uh, I guess, I don't know, a week and a half ago and started playing with it. And definitely, you know, it's pretty much limitless. Well, I won't say limitless, but if there's a, I guess what, an extension sheet or if there is... Uh, an action that you haven't been able to do because it just wasn't there by the app developer yet. Uh, this definitely acts as that good glue wear. So it's been fun to play with. Now it's just uh, <laughs> the the flip side is, you know, determining which things should or should not be automated. Uh, it's always comical when you see, you know, CNN or Fox News or Drudge Report pop something up that's like, so-and-so posted images of XYZ on their Twitter feed. It's like, huh, I wonder if that would happen because I had a workflow set up that I didn't, you know, mean to accidentally have an email automatically get pushed to Twitter or something like that that had critical personal information. But so, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. 
Yeah, it, it definitely happens. You know, we've got all these Twitter accounts going on right now. And I think, uh, you know, I made the mistake. I retweeted something from the wrong account. I went in there. I was like, oh, I'll just delete it. Uh, but you can't delete a retweet. Uh, you know, you can delete a regular tweet, but not a retweet. So, uh, you know, like you said, you've just got to uh, watch what you're doing and, and be mindful of some of this stuff. Um, you know, one of the other things uh, that that workflow app uh, does that I've been using it for on my iPad um, I've, I've been taking my iPad to work a little bit more, so I've got a, a keyboard and things for it. Um, and I'm finding that I can get around pretty well with it and use it for a lot of things. Um, one of the things I did miss was the ability to um, view the source of some pages sometimes. Uh, so there's a really cool action out there that lets you uh, go ahead and uh, view the source of an HTML page from uh, Safari or Chrome. It'll just go ahead and consume that URL and show it back to you. Um, so, you know, there's apps that you can go out and buy, uh, you know, specifically for that. Um, but the nice thing is you kind of pay once for workflow and then it does all these things within it. Definitely pretty powerful. Now, if only I had enough time to kind of figure out all my different use cases. But uh, moving on to, you know, kind of one of our other areas we work in on a regular basis, the cloud. Um, uh, kind of interesting to see. Uh, I guess it's AWS put out kind of their own service offering called WorkMail. Uh, I think they had said it would be equivalent to Exchange, but it wasn't Exchange. It was their own kind of uh, baked mail system that they were putting out there for email, calendaring, uh, basically an Exchange alternative. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if that's actually going to catch on anywhere with all the different enterprise email providers already out there with, uh, you know, the Google Apps folks out there for their business offering, as well as uh, Microsoft with Exchange Online and Office 365. It seems like I understand, I get why they have that out there and why they're putting it out there since they are cloudy, so to speak. But it just seems interesting that they're putting out a service offering that already exists in multiple other places. Um, the other, the flip side of that is it's also interesting to kind of see them put out their own idea of directory services. Uh, I don't know if you've taken too much time to play with this, but it really just kind of seems to me like uh, AWS was in need of having something similar to Azure Active Directory that would synchronize with uh, like an on-premise uh, AD of some sort. So they decided to write some connector, it seems like, to go back down and pull information from AD up into uh, like an AWS-based LDAP. I don't know if you've gotten to play with those more being down in Sydney. Two really interesting services. Um, WorkMail, like you mentioned, uh, being that Exchange-compatible uh, service, I think what's going on there, or if I had to take a guess at what that play is, um, Amazon and uh, AWS with EC2 uh, has been one of the few places that you can deploy um, a performant uh, Exchange system in the cloud. So we still can't deploy Exchange uh, in a supported fashion uh, into providers like Azure. Uh, so, so it's kind of tough. Um, and when you go out and you deploy something like Exchange into AWS, it requires a lot of resources. It's heavy on compute. It's using a lot of databases. We need to stand up a lot of these um, IaaS servers on the side. So WorkMail becomes pretty compelling when... Um, okay, I can get the same economies of moving Exchange out of my data center and pushing it someplace else, uh, but now I can let Amazon uh, handle the heavy lifting on that. Uh, so it's nice that it's Exchange compatible. Uh, you know, it's got its own 
uh, iOS apps and Android apps, or you can just hook up to it with ActiveSync. Um, it does all those kind of things. So it's a nice compatible service, um, pushes things across. I can really see why they want people to uh, maybe deploy Exchange a little bit less uh, because Exchange is hard enough to manage in and of itself. And then translating that over uh, into a cloud-based deployment into uh, like one of these public clouds uh, can be really difficult because you know it's one thing to wrap your head around AWS. It's another thing to wrap your head around AWS plus Exchange. So I, I can see the space for having that managed offering. Uh, you also mentioned directory. So directory to me um, is a really cool service. So uh, Amazon hasn't necessarily said what uh, they're they're running the directory on the back end. So directory is really two things. Uh, so they, they have two offerings in it. One is uh, simple AD. Uh, so basically simple directory service. And uh, that's a uh, LDAP compatible directory service. Uh, Amazon hasn't said what it is, uh, but it supports uh, users, computers, um, and group policies. So when you look at that in comparison to something like Azure Active Directory, um, Azure Active Directory is really about managing um, user and group identities and, and kind of claims and applications around those and all the assertions and things that go on. Um, Azure AD uh, doesn't handle a group policy. You can't join a computer to it. So it's not really a domain in the, in the traditional sense that we think about a Windows domain. Uh, whereas AWS's directory service, that really truly is uh, a, a domain in that sense, right? Um, we can join computers to it. We can push GPOs from it. And that's just simple AD. So we can go ahead and do that and push those things around. Um, the other way that it's kind of different from Azure, so Azure Active Directory, uh, kind of when we want to hook it up to an on-premises uh, existing uh, domain, uh, we, we have to go through this synchronization process with uh, Directory Sync. So Directory Sync is actually making copies of our objects. Um, it's pushing them up with FIM, uh, and they're going up into the cloud. So th there's a agent on-premises that's running um, that's making sure, hey, my on-premises uh, domain is going to be my source of truth. Let me go ahead and push these up to Azure AD. Uh, Amazon's taken a different tact with that. So for them, uh, there really is no synchronization. Um, basically, once we get out of simple AD and you say you want to connect it to an existing AD, uh, they use a proxy and they basically proxy all those connections back uh, to your on-premises system. So when you need to do authentication or join a computer to a domain, things like that, those calls would talk to the proxy and then the proxy would issue that request back to your on-premises system or maybe to your um, Active Directory that's running inside your VPC, things like that. Um, they also announced uh, yesterday, one, one thing that was kind of um, uh, missing from the directory service was the ability to um, automatically join uh, computers up to it. So uh, as of uh, yesterday, they've got um, an API out there and you can actually configure it through the console as well um, to automatically have your EC2 instances uh, join up to uh, those directories, whether it's the proxy directory uh, or it's just the simple AD service. Um, it's definitely really neat stuff. And they're, and they're you know, both providers are taking uh, a, a different uh, a, a diverging paths with it, right? So Azure Active Directory is, um, it's really becoming um, kind of more like uh, ADFS. It, it's, it's becoming this big federation service 
let me get as much stuff as I can in there for user accounts and group information um, and be able to build, um, you know, that holistic view of a user where AWS is really looking at directory service, it seems, um, as just that. They, they, they just really, we're going to be an IaaS provider. Um, we're going to give you the tools to make these things work a little bit better, a little bit easier, um, and, and, and go ahead and go on your day. Um, you know, again, it makes for a great story. Uh, you know, I can see a lot of the time when I talk to clients and we go, okay, let's go ahead and talk about uh, what we're going to do for identity out in the cloud. You know, and, and we look at deploying solutions in Azure like uh, SharePoint and we say, okay, well, uh, you know, we can absolutely do um, that authentication piece against something like Azure AD, but we still need a place to store uh, your service accounts for your farm and your computer accounts. Now we have to stand up domain controllers or we have to hook up and uh, maybe do that site-to-site VPN and talk back to your on-premises system. Um, in AWS land with this directory service, I can say, hey, we don't even need to stand up a domain. Let's just deploy simple AD. Uh, we'll go ahead and provision all your users and computers in there. Um, and it's less servers for you to manage, less for you to worry about, kind of cuts down on, on uh, the surface area of what you've got going on there. Yeah, I guess I'm kind of curious, you know, what's going to go on in that space with regard to Azure AD. I know you can use it for all the different things in the cloud, um, but it just seems like a world where, uh, you know, if it were me, if I were Microsoft um, and I wanted to dominate the world, I would uh, start trying to do what AWS is doing, but who knows? Um, uh, I guess the deli- the um, directory stuff, directory service that AWS has. Uh, I don't know. There are a lot of things in it that I still look at and I kind of go, you know, it, it's neat, but that it just doesn't quite cut it for everything that I'm looking for. But you're right. It definitely does make sense that AWS is putting that out there and trying to uh, make that story, make that case for having all your services connected into one thing. Uh, one service offering that I think would be cool, which I don't see them doing, is what uh, Microsoft does with like Intune. So I know uh, if you, for those that don't know what Microsoft Intune is, uh, Intune allows you to kind of go through and manage uh, the policy on uh, mobile devices, and it doesn't it doesn't do uh, actual like PCs, does it, Scott? It does some. Uh... PC management as well. So you've got components out there to uh, kind of use it as, as a Windows update server. So it, it, it can do uh, managed pushes for Windows updates and things like that. Um, you know, again, I, I think both of them look at these as um, they're really divergent products, right? They're, they're not going to be the same thing. Uh, and, you, you know, you, you said something really interesting about Director. You said, you know, for you, when you look at it, um, there's some things that it's not going to do for you that you might want it to. Um, so, you know, that's often that 80-20 thing. They're really building these services for the 80%. I can see from my clients, you know, in the commercial space, um, that's a hugely compelling thing. Like, hey, let's go turn on a directory. It does GPOs. It does all these things. Um, might not do MDM and some of the other things that you want it to do, but you might already have, uh, you know, products in place that let you do that. So to even be able to cover that 80% is a huge thing. Let's just turn it on and let, let it do what it's going to do. And then for folks that come along who are in your shoes where you say, well, 
I'd like to use directory, but it doesn't do what I want to do, you can still deploy those traditional infrastructures the way you've wanted to. So you can kind of mix and match and um, come to the place that you want to be. Uh, you know, if you can't use the platform uh, capabilities of directory, then let's not do that. Let's just go ahead and deploy our own kit the way we usually do. Uh, so you, you can get this kind of nice mix of both worlds in there. Yeah, I almost think, you know, if you wanted to really go hog wild with this kind of stuff, you could do something where uh, you've got AWS up and operational for some of your different IaaS components that require things to be quote-unquote perform <coughs> performant, one of my favorite make-believe words. Uh, or, you know, at the same time, you've got all these other SaaS services over in your uh, Office 365 cloud. I'm curious how many folks are actually, you know, setting both of them up and then potentially, and I'm not saying you should try doing this, uh, potentially connecting AWS directory through FIM to Azure Active Directory so that you could have, you know, some sort of replication going on back and forth. That would be kind of one of those uh, those use cases that could be fairly interesting to actually work on that. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know that you need to. So I tend to see with my clients that they kind of go all in one way or the other. So if uh, you're, you're with Amazon, um, you're, you're tending to be in some of those more traditional um, IaaS workloads. Um, and you've kind of gone that way because you want to remain traditional. Um, Microsoft, you know, they have the kind of the compelling story around all the SaaS apps. Um, and th they're opening things up there, right? So um, when I look at something like Office 365, so um, all our identities in Office 365 are backed by Azure Active Directory. It's been that way uh, pretty much since the beginning. You know, nobody ever really talked about it. Microsoft is starting to surface those things a little bit more. So if you manage an Office 365 tenant today, uh, when you go into your admin dashboard, there's actually a link on the left-hand side now uh, that says Azure AD on it. You click that link, it'll take you over. Uh, if you haven't created an Azure subscription yet, um, it'll create a subscription for you, uh, you know, kind of tie your information into it. You already had it there, it was there. You're just associating your, your information with it. Um, one of the interesting things is if, if you come through that workflow, um, what happens is typically when we sign up for Azure, we're asked to put a credit card in. So as we start to consume services and we could have our trial periods and things like that, hey, Microsoft's going to charge us money for what we consume. Um, but when we come through that Azure AD link, if you haven't signed up for that subscription, it actually skips the payment portion. It, it, it doesn't collect that information in the workflow. So you're left with a 100% free subscription. Um, and what's going to happen is Microsoft actually announced this week that they're going to start to tie uh, some feature sets in that typically in the past belonged to uh, some of the Azure AD SKUs. So we've got uh, free, basic, and premium. Um, so the, those basic and premium SKUs offered some additional functionality within uh, Azure AD. Office 365 subscribers are going to start to get some of that functionality. So um, if you have an E3, um, you're going to get access to some of the uh, some some of the My App stuff that's out there. Uh, you're also going to get access to uh, login page uh, customizations and things like that. Um, so we're starting to get this nice blend of the worlds on that side. Um, and, and, you know, as far as like tying all that together, uh, you know, again, once you're on the Microsoft side, you're probably going to be all in there. You know, I, I've, I've tried to put it together in my head a little bit, you know, how would we do like, uh, you know, maybe we want to stand up 
multiple clouds and have failovers between something like Azure and AWS. Um, but for the systems we work with, things like um, SharePoint and um, Exchange and these traditional uh, Windows-based workloads, uh, th they were never really architected to work with those multi-region failovers and everything. So trying to adapt them to some of these services is hard. Uh, there are some companies that do it successfully for like new deployments. Uh, so uh, I don't know if everybody's heard of, um, uh, there's an identity service out there called Auth0. Um, they actually have uh, a really cool architecture uh, for the way they run their service. So they basically run uh, a managed identity service, um, you know, claims-based authentication and all that good stuff. Um, so a couple of months ago, I think when Azure had a, a big outage, um, they actually just failed over to their AWS architecture. So th they were already bifurcated from the start. They built an architecture that said, hey, let us live in um, Azure and AWS and float back and forth between those things. So, you know, you can do it if you're starting out with kind of greenfield new products that you're building yourself and you have a lot of control over. I think it's really hard to adapt some of these interesting things, right? Because we get more into the theory land of what if which gets us away from the practicality of um, what should we be doing today. Uh, I suppose on this one, we'll agree to disagree. Uh, not really, but I think, you know, in some regard, it would be kind of fun to have uh, some of the, the trickier problems of having to put together a system that connects the two. But I guess, you know, from a disaster recovery perspective, maybe that's the use case for using multiple clouds and, connecting directory with Azure Active Directory and so on and so forth. But um, one of the other things from a, you know, IT pro perspective that's near and dear to my heart, uh, Microsoft last week decided, let's go ahead and start pushing our SharePoint updates through Windows Update. And that caught me off guard just a little bit, um, mostly because, you know, all those times where uh, SharePoint updates require you to do that cute little uh, PS config afterward or uh, running the configuration wizard, which we definitely don't like it when people do. Um, so it just it seemed alarming that Microsoft would go down the path of uh, trying to do that, um, only because it would leave some SharePoint environments in a pseudo-patched level. Um, I don't really know what your take on it is, but I suppose, you know, if, if the issue is that SharePoint administrators aren't getting patches uh, pushed to their environments in an orderly fashion, that's one problem. But the same token, uh, by potentially breaking environments, that also causes an issue. And I know a lot of the guidance that we, you and I both know, um, is to have uh, some sort of, you know, update service running, whether that be WSUS or... Uh, something else, some other program that's used for, you know, orchestrations of software uh, updates being pushed. Uh, it's one of those things where I just kind of chuckle because there's probably a lot of folks out there that are smaller organizations that are running SharePoint in some capacity and probably the same guy that runs email, runs SharePoint, runs Link, runs uh, the WordPress blog and everything else. Uh, maybe this is a benefit for them. Maybe not. Um but uh, just seems kind of like one of those things that this is going to cause more problems than fix. So, yeah, I get it. We should be running WSUS. We should be targeting different environments with different levels of patches and preventing servers from going out and manually getting patches. But for folks that aren't doing that, this seems like it could be quite a bit of trouble.
Yeah, it's not a great story. Uh, I've had some trouble already. Uh, I, I've seen some issues with some of our developers internally, uh, where their development uh, VMs, you know, they're they've never been configured correctly, so they're they're all set for auto update and all those things. Um, so all of a sudden, they're getting all these patches pushed out that they never had before. Um, and, you know, this isn't just for SharePoint 2013. These patches are also showing up for SharePoint 2010. And they're going to do this going forward. So it, it, I've had a lot of clients in the past um, where, you know, we walk in and do a, a, a new deployment. We set everything up. And then we come back two weeks later and the whole thing is broken because, um, you know, the department we're working with, uh, you know, patching is managed by another department. And they didn't know that SharePoint is this thing that's patched in a unique manner. And, you know, maybe we've got to run PS config because now we're in binary compatibility. You know, so we spent a lot of time, uh, or at least I have in the past with clients, you know, hey, let's put exceptions in for these servers and slow roll the patches. And we've got to test them through multiple environments and see what goes on. Because let's be honest, Microsoft hasn't uh, had a great track record when it comes to SharePoint patches. They usually break a lot of things. They have regressions. Um, sometimes they introduce new functionality that um, is undocumented. Uh, you know, it, it's it's really hard to put those things um, into perspective. Um, and then having these push through Windows Update this way. So typically, when we're going to consume uh, a, a CU from Microsoft or a service pack or anything else, it's going to come down as uh, one big package. Uh, but that package is going to be a collection of, of all the smaller patches within it. Um, but, you know, it's it's a premeditated thing to say, I'm going to go out and grab the February 2015 CU. I'm going to roll this across each of my servers, one, two, three, and, and go ahead and push that out and trust that all those patches are going to go out at once. Having the Windows Update route, you're not getting the CU. You're seeing each individual patch appear. So that becomes a lot more difficult to manage. So rather than having... Uh, just one installation package that had everything rolled up into it. Now you've got 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 individual patches that each need to go out. Um, and potentially along the way, you know, we don't know what we need to do with PS config and things like that. So it makes the patching story um, quite a bit harder. Uh, and, and, you know, just the management around that, uh, from my perspective, it makes it kind of nightmarish to, to go through and keep up on those things. Um, so everybody's got to be aware of this. Um, Microsoft has, again, not been great about communicating. Uh, you know, they've, they've got the support articles up, but they really haven't even said in the support articles, hey, we're going to push these into Windows Update moving forward. Uh, there's a couple updates out there on um, blogs, like Stefan Gossner uh, works in that product team, and he has a blog out there about, hey, we're going to do this going forward. It's nice that it's on his blog, but I think only the kind of, uh, you know, the gearheads in the community are getting that stuff. Uh, people at, you know, enterprise customers or these guys who, like you said, they manage SharePoint and Exchange and desktops and all the other things. They're not keeping up on that news. So, you know, I think there's going to be a, a couple months of hurt here as everybody figures out that, uh, hey, the, these things are in here uh, moving forward. The other thing to you know kind of consider that came to mind for me at least was developers like keeping their VMs that they probably run, uh, whether that be in Azure or whether that be on their desktop, uh, on that beefy laptop that they went and bought when SharePoint 2013 came out. Uh, you know, having 
having that in sync with the same patch level as what uh, everybody else in the organization has becomes another planning step that they've got to kind of take account for and make certain that they're doing something for because otherwise they're just going to go down the path of uh, you know pain where the developer says, oh, well, that API is available to me. What are you talking about? It's not available in production just because production hasn't actually pushed to the latest and greatest. So I, I could see some other issues popping up in that dev story here and there that uh, I don't quite have a good answer for outside of uh, okay, your VM that we said should be isolated and not touching the domain now needs to touch the domain so that we can make certain that you're getting WSUS pushed from us and not pushed from Microsoft. I don't know what to say. Like I said, it's it's not a great story. It, it, I think it hurts more than it helps. Um, we'll have to just see how it how it plays out and... Uh, how the wide world reacts to this. I can understand why Microsoft wants these patches to get out there, uh, but on the same side, I don't know that, you know, I don't think that they've, I'm sure they have a handle on the way their customers are doing things, uh, but typically the way I see uh, my customers handling things, they're not, you know, really down with this, hey, let's update every month kind of thing and, um, push things through. They really do like to slow roll, right? So Microsoft, you know, it seems like they're pushing like, hey, let's make this, we, we want to start to get to the world where on-premises can be a little bit more uh, like the cloud and we want to sell this hybrid story and everything. So to be able to do that, we need to have kind of the same cadence and we're going to have new features coming out and we're going to want our on-premises systems to get those new features so that they can marry up uh, to what we have going on in, in things like Office 365. Um, it's just going to be tough for, you know, the rest of us to figure that out and, and get on board with, you know, where it all shakes out. Yep. So I know, uh, we're probably running up against time a little bit, but I figure, you know, if people have made it this far, they might as well continue listening. Um, have you, uh, have you gotten through, uh, adding all your comments and your thoughts to the different user voice communities out there? I, I know, it seemed like there was only one uh, user voice community out there for all of SharePoint through the Office 365 developer platform, but it seems like uh, Microsoft has kind of realized, hey, feedback is good. We should get more of this. And all of a sudden we see them uh, popping up in OneDrive and SharePoint having their own user voices. So I didn't know if you'd uh, gone in and started putting, thing out, <clears throat> putting things out there that we can vote on. Uh, I've contributed a couple things to the de developer side for um, Office 365. You know, hey, let's let's expose some new APIs or uh, you know upvoted some things over there. Some of these communities are relatively new, uh, so user voice for uh, on-premises SharePoint deployments uh, dropped a, a week or two ago. Um, you know, it, it's it's an interesting place for uh, folks to go out and. Um, actually give that direct feedback to Microsoft. Um, and then if you look at the way they've structured some of those things around like the Office 365 developer platform, um, the things that go into user voice uh, actually do get driven back into um, product development. And, you know, they have these things all over the place. They have them not just for uh, SharePoint, Office 365. They have them for things, uh, other platforms that they have like Azure and um, some of the SDKs and, and uh, you know, the um, the customer requests that are driving development across uh, all these spaces. So, yeah, I, I would highly encourage everyone to go out there, um, spin up an account, 
if you have ideas, great. Go ahead and put those out there and see if you can get them upvoted. Or if you like uh, some of the ideas that other folks have already put out there, um, use that base set of points that they give you to go ahead and start um, bubbling some of those things up. So hopefully we can see them in future releases. Yeah, and I think uh, if you go in there and you go and you you know start putting in different terminology, so on and so forth, it'll pop up uh, what may or may not have already been put out there. So if you were really interested in seeing a way for SharePoint uh, Online to change the delay of you know the little new icon when someone uploads a new item or adds a new list item. Uh, change that from like three days or change it to five days or to two weeks or something like that. Uh, well, first they'd have to change the way that feature works altogether inside SharePoint since that's a server level property, I believe. Um, but, you know, it'll pop up other people that have potentially put something similar uh, so that you at least can either hop onto their bandwagon or uh, go, nope, nope, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this other thing that's just slightly different. So, um, like you, like you said, uh, if you have a minute, go over to user voice. Um, it is not owned by Microsoft. It is third party. So you can use your Google account, your Facebook account. I think, uh, you can use a plethora of different accounts to log into it. <clears throat> um, I use, uh, I guess my Gmail account for that, but, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to have a Microsoft account to be able to hop on there and add feedback, and it's not another identity you have to remember. Um, some of the other kind of interesting things in the Office 365 world, uh, there's been a lot of churn this week. Um, kind of like you mentioned, uh, some of the different things that have been popping up, I think probably the most notable to me is uh, seeing some of the functionality added uh, with the cloud service providers, so or cloud storage providers, excuse me, um, having that be something that's pluggable for Office 365, specifically the Office apps. And I know they said, you know, updates would be coming down the path, uh, down the road to the Office web applications, but it was interesting to wake up the other morning and, uh, you know, do my usual morning routine of popping open the App Store, going to updates, and going, huh. There's a gig and a half of updates for Office on iOS. Fantastic. Um, to see that, you know, the update was the ability to go in and join in my iCloud uh, account and be able to hit documents from there instead of having to go through either Dropbox or just uh, OneDrive. So interesting to see that kind of pop up. Um, the other thing that probably wasn't noticed quite as much uh, was with regard to OneNote. And I know the last time the OneNote iOS app got any sort of update was probably about a month ago. Um, that was up till, I think, this morning or last night for you. Uh, the ability for it to go through in OCR images, which is pretty wild to have, you know, something go through and OCR all of your pictures that you take so that uh, all that information is searchable. Um, I know, Scott, for you, whenever you go on a trip, you tend to take uh, photographs of every single receipt and drop it up into that other provider, similar to OneNote. Um, so I guess this is kind of, you know, the response to that, being able to go through and uh, take pictures with OneNote through the office lens and have that go through on iOS devices and automatically do the transform. Um, and I think that was also added in for the OneNote app for OS X. Uh, so it came to OS X, then it went to iOS. Um, and then last, 
the other thing that popped up with OneNote, and I just literally saw a tweet about this maybe 20 minutes ago, was uh, Microsoft announcing that you can now use a stylus uh, with your iPad to use OneNote. And I thought that was kind of one of those things. It's kind of a, I wouldn't say it's a game changer, but it's interesting to see all these different little updates popping out to uh, add additional usability to the product. Yeah, I, I think it's more, you know, Microsoft is starting to uh, adopt some of the native features of platforms. So, you know, for like that iCloud Drive integration, uh, it wasn't so much that they integrated with iCloud Drive. It was that they integrated with kind of the native document picker. Um, so that, that workflow can be a little obtuse because, hey, they're using um, Apple's APIs to go ahead and get in there. Um, you, you know, it, it's nice to see them doing those things. Uh, I, you know, I look at things like uh, Outlook uh, for iOS uh, and Android. So what used to be Accompli, uh, you know, they're pushing updates to that weekly now. Um, so, you know, some of the things that were missing in there in the beginning, like some of the uh, the, the MDM features, like if I have uh, a, a PIN uh, requirement or a passcode requirement um, uh, on the exchange side, on the active sync side, uh, you, you know, in the past, uh, there was no way to enforce that or, you know, the Accompli client wasn't watching for those things. Um, and it is now. So they're just adopting the features that they can of each platform uh, to make them marry up with uh, their kind of um, mobile first, cloud first vision. So let's be platform agnostic um, and use the features of each platform uh, where we can. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of exciting. It makes it nice to, to to watch some of those things. Like I said, I try and use my iPad at work quite a bit more. Um, so it's nice to have access to uh, Word and PowerPoint and things like that on that device uh, with really great fidelity. Uh, and being able to go through and just kind of work on whatever device I have in front of me, um, because usually it's either going to be uh, one of my laptops, which is going to be a, a Mac or a Windows laptop, or it's going to be my iPad or my phone, something like that. Uh, like I said, it's never, I don't think it's ever going to be one of those cruddy little Windows tablets. I could have sworn that you were, <clears throat> you were made for that little Dell Venue Pro. Oh, I can't stand that thing. It's the bane of my existence. I'll have to find more toys for you when you get back to the U.S., uh, I guess, what, in December, January of next year for your next yeah, holiday? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes, and uh, we'll see if my wife lets me buy any new toys. So anything else you want to cover, or do you want to let these folks uh, have their ears uh, back I think for that's it for today. Uh, we'll definitely come back next week and uh, try and slog through some more of this stuff. You know, I, I think uh, going week to week through these things, you know, our, our list of topics is continuing to grow. Uh, so maybe it'd be nice to have some feedback from, you know, the one or two people out there that are listening um, about some other things that or some other areas where we could spend a little bit more time and, and dive into. So Tim Farrow, we want some feedback, man.